Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I think this is a really authentic representation of a certain affluent, white, heteronormative divorce. And I'm coming to this as a gay woman who hasn't been able to get married. And so I think if you look at queer films about breakups, you see a slightly different feel and a slightly different texture, something like Desiree Akhavan's Appropriate Behaviour or something like that. And there's a whole different relationship code and narrative going on because the expectation within queer circles hasn't necessarily been so much that a relationship should or will indeed last forever. Hey everyone and welcome to this episode of Flixwatch Podcast. Today I'm joined by Rosie. Hello. Sasha. Hello. And Helen. Hi. And we're going to be talking marriage story. Thank you as always to the mighty people for the mighty, mighty tunes. And thanks to Ben from Rockwood Audio for his awesome editing skills. Please do remember to write a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts anywhere you can do where you listen to the podcast because it really does help us. And you can join in the conversation with us on Twitter at FlixWatcherPod and on Instagram at FlixWatcher. Hello film fans, welcome to Flix Watcher Podcast. Our guests today are Rosie and Sasha. Over to you please, Sasha, to say hello to our listeners and tell them a little bit more about who you are and what you do, please. Hello. Yeah, I'm Sasha Bates. I'm a psychotherapist and a writer and a podcaster. Both my books and my podcast are therapy related. Two of my books are about grief because my husband died very unexpectedly. So I got very interested, despite myself, in the grieving process. And then the other book is about the parallels between yoga and psychotherapy because I'm very interested in the mind-body connection. So my podcast is called Shrink the Box. I do it with my co-host Ben Bailey-Smith. He's been on here before. Yes, yeah, he has. And we each week we talk about a different fictional character from one of the big series that everybody knows and loves. Or characters. You've, you've branched down to doing some... Yes, occasionally we do, we'll do. we do more than one. But I will talk about them as though they are my clients, as though they were on my therapist's couch. <laughs> And yeah, it's a really fun project that we really like doing. I really like the concept and this the way you delve into some of my favourite characters in TV and film. I have a podcast on The Wire, so Omar Little was a big one for me. I smashed all the way through Happy Valley, so Catherine Carwood was interesting listening to her. Your thoughts on her background, and also I've not I've not touched the sex education yet, but that's one of my favourite TV shows. So I like everything you're doing there across the board. Do you have to watch how many episodes of the TV shows do you watch before? Yeah, it's quite it's quite a lot of work. It's yeah. a lot more work than I than I really thought through when I came up with the idea. I didn't quite think think through. Actually, this is going to take hours and hours of my life. We do generally occasional changes, but generally do we do the first series of of each show. So it's normally between sort of ten or twelve hours worth. 
worth of, of ploughing through. I'd already seen all of the series apart from two, but I obviously had to rewatch them because my memory's not that great. But the only two I hadn't seen that I wasn't rewatching was The Bear. Oh, yes. Which actually, yeah, that's about to, series two is about to begin. And the other one I hadn't watched. So series two is all launched today as we record. Yes, exactly. And the I'll Shrink the Box episode goes out on Tuesday. So it was all beautifully timed. <laughs> and then the only other series that I hadn't watched before we did it was Bloodline. And that was a really great series. I was really pleased to be introduced to that. But all the others were ones that I had known and loved already. And I knew I wanted to talk about. So it's been brilliant. <laughs> I keep a minute to send suggestions to you guys for, I'm sure you've got, you've got. You a, can tell me now. <laughs> well, I haven't got anything off the top of my head, but I will, right. <laughs> I will get to you. Certainly. I think Kami from The Bear and also other people, I, I, I think I, Quite often I think about the ancillary characters because you've done Omar and the Wine. There's so many other characters in there I'd like you to delve into a bit, as, mm. for example. Um, but yeah, loving the show. Great. Thank you. And Rosie, who are you? You're, you're a returnee. Returning guest. Yeah. yeah. It, it was a long time ago, though. Myself and Viv Groskop came along quite yeah. a few years Was it years a long time ago? ago? So it was just pre-pandemic. And that well, it was like pre-pandemic, but ago. even quite a bit before <laughs> that, I feel. Yeah. I'm, I'm not even sure I had started my podcast. You definitely had, yeah. Had I? Okay. Yeah. I, I've been doing that a long time as well, then. I can't remember what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> so you chose blue is the warmest colour as your choice, wasn't it? I did, and Viv absolutely hated it and hated me for making her watch it, yeah. <laughs> but tell us, you've released a book since you joined us, so tell us a bit about that. Yes, so I'm, well, sometimes known as the Queen of Breakups. I actually received a package that was addressed to me as the Queen of Breakups just yesterday, so I'm quite happy <laughs> that people are now cottoning on and using my proper title. And uh, this is because... As I chatted to you last time, I host a podcast called The Breakup Monologues, which is all about breakups. And that is also now a book published all around the world by Bloomsbury, although I was one of the many authors whose hardback first came out when the world was in a very odd place. Mine came out towards the sort of tail end of the pandemic when we were coming out of the lockdowns, but we could still only have about five people in a room. So I didn't get to have a proper book launch for the hardback. But then once once things started to return to some sort of normal and festivals and events were happening again, I've been touring a lot with the book. And the paperback came out in January this year. So we had did have a fabulous launch with loads of people there for that and it's been great to sort of get out and chat to people about breakups and all the psychology of heartbreak how it compares to withdrawing from a drug or other addictive substances and telling people about my own exploits of trying to find out more about the science of our sexuality and romantic desires, including my experience of going and participating in a sex lab and watching erotica on a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> on a Tuesday afternoon. Would it been, would have been better if it was a weekend activity or, I don't know. It seems... Yeah, yeah. It, it was a very strange experience, particularly when the control clip they show you in between the erotica in order to supposedly calm you down is actually a David Attenborough nature documentary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the planet Earth is amazing. 
<laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's most people when I say that, they're like, well, I'd be really aroused by that. I mean, they tried to make it quite a sort of dull clip of just sort of, you know, grass growing on the African savanna or something. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's already a judgment there about what's going to turn you on and turn you off. Whereas human sexuality is very broad and varied. So there could be some people who are turned on by grass. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? <laughs> you know, my, my grass fetish. <laughs> We're here talking about marriage story, which, which ties in very closely to breakup monologues, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I love watching films and media that are all about breakups and love kind of going wrong and really telling us something about how the narrative that we see in the sort of the rom-coms and the fairy tale love stories really isn't fit for purpose and isn't realistic, isn't authentic, isn't a real representation of how human relationships play out in the real world and how much work relationships are, how much negotiation and compromise there really is. You know, I'm a particular fan of the Sunrise Sunset trilogy I was going to ask about them, yeah. Yeah, because I think I'm a very similar age to the two actors, the two characters. And so it really felt like their sort of idealism and latterly cynicism about romantic love was very much in parallel to my own journey. <laughs> so I'm going to give you 60 seconds mm. maximum to tell us a synopsis of this. Are you ready to go? Okay, then. And the timer starts... Now, this is the story of theatre director Charlie <laughs> and his actor wife, Nicole, who live in an apartment in New York with their son. And the marriage starts to go wrong when she gets a TV job in L.A. and wants to take their son with her and start a new life, staying with her mother and with her family there where her roots originally were. And she wants to reclaim her voice, her sense of agency, which she feels has disappeared within the relationship. And they start off amicably, but then things all start to go horribly wrong when they both hire divorce lawyers. One of the divorce lawyers that he initially hires is a nice divorce lawyer, but then he realises he's got, he's got to get a horrible one. So it all turns terribly sour and there are horrible arguments but ultimately they are okay in the end very nice perfect just under the timer there sasha had you seen this before marriage story no and i really liked it i was really pleased to have been given the opportunity to watch it yeah i thought it was great really brilliant progression but from two people who have such unrealistic expectations of their own marriage and also of their own divorce and that sort of brutal slide into the reality both mm. of the marriage and of the divorce was was a divorce as they hoped at the start was it unrealistic i mean i, I rarely see I, I i don't know i'm not going through a divorce process i don't know any friends who've gone through it but it seemed like they all with best intentions let's do this nicely and everything will be okay but ultimately as divorce tends to play out on TV and, and film, people are shelling over lots and lots of money and no one's happy with anything that's happening there. And you kind of think, could they not have done it the way they ideally wanted it? I think this is really interesting because I think this is a really authentic representation of a certain affluent, white, heteronormative divorce. And I'm coming to this as a gay woman who hasn't been able to get married. And so I think if you look at queer films about breakups, you see a slightly different 
feel in a slightly different texture, something like Desiree Akavan's appropriate behavior or something like that. And there's a whole yeah. different relationship code and narrative going on because the expectation within queer circles hasn't necessarily been so much that a relationship should or will indeed last forever. Whereas I think within the sort of heteronormative world, there is that pressure, there is that expectation that you're going to, well, as people call it, you sort of move along the relationship escalator. I like decoding all these weird new words we have for our behaviours in relationships from ghosting and breadcrumbing and submarining. My favourite one of those, by the way, is marleying, where you ghost someone but then pop up again at Christmas. <laughs> but yeah, the relationship escalator is where we're under societal pressure to move very quickly through recognised relationship stages from courtship, dating, getting together, living together, marrying, having children. Children. And then obviously the great pinnacle is that you both die. <laughs> and if you stayed together the whole time, then you've, you've won at love. And so, <laughs> yay. I think that as a queer woman, I've challenged that narrative a little bit. Whereas I think, you know, most of my straight friends still sort of think that is the narrative. That's the way a relationship should play out. So I think both of these characters have gone into a marriage with that sort of idealism that Sasha was just talking about, that sort of unrealism that we all feel to some extent when we're in the highs of falling in love and getting to know somebody and just enjoying that thrilling roller coaster ride of wanting to be with them and know all about them and have sex with them and stay up all night talking and <laughs> but what about the divorce side of things here that's because that's obviously that, that's kind of the main thrust of this film where they start off not once again the lawyers involved and it's only when we get laura dern's lawyer who's is very affable on the face of it but she also knows how to get things done in a way that charlie's character wasn't prepared for and also scarlett johansson her character wasn't prepared for so that's that's to me is when it kind of did flip did a proper like 180 flip and everything changed on his head. I was going to say like, I haven't been divorced, but kind of being on the sort of outside of relationships that have broken down that I think amicable divorce is kind of an oxymoron in that there isn't an amicable divorce because you, you know, you are divorcing, you're separating and it brings up everything that has led to the breakdown to one moment. And essentially each party wants to get out the best they can. And once obviously lawyers are involved, then that kind of, as we see in this film, everything gets taken. Things that are said, small things that are done suddenly become part of the battle for, for each of the parties. So I think it is very much as what you've said about like this kind of romanticised white middle-class idea of the amicable divorce is what they expect will happen. But it doesn't exist. So their relationship living happily ever after, the want of this kind of amicable, magical divorce doesn't exist either. So I think it's really interesting that it is kind of the romantic film, but they don't end up together at the end, which a lot of films kind of feel the need to to go, you know, it was really shit and they had a really horrible time, but they got back together. Everything was okay. Don't panic. Yeah, I, mean, I wasn't expecting to get back together. I was just thought that I was, I was I'm kind of hoping that they both weren't going to, because I think for me, these lawyers are the, are the core of it. Even Bert's at £150 an hour 
$450 an hour and, you know, you see him write, you see Charlie writing a, a check for £25,000. You think these are the guys that are winning from this divorce piece. It's not, it's not really the, the people in the middle. And I feel that because they seemed amicable all the way through and obviously they've taken like little pot shots at each other um, where incidental things became a big thing when it, when the lawyers were involved. I just, in my heart, I was like, oh, could they, is there a way they could do it in a way that they don't lose hundreds of thousands of dollars? And it seems like in this case, no, I don't know. I, I think it, in a way it feels to me a little bit like it mirrors the, the therapy process whereby when you go in, you don't really know what Pandora's box you're opening. You don't really understand what the door you're opening is leading you into. And often in therapy, people come in thinking, oh, I'll just come in for six sessions and I just want to deal with this little minor skirmish with my boss or something. And then sort of six years later, they say, <laughs> oh, everything I thought I knew about my childhood was a lie. <laughs> and the... It feels a little bit like the uh, the legal process is like that. And you can almost see, particularly with Nicole, Scarlett Johansson's character, talking to her lawyer, Nora, Laura Dern's character, you can see how it's in the telling of the story to Nora that the lights are sort of going on, that she's slowly realising and recognising that the marriage and the life and the relationship that she thought she had was not quite what it was. And I think it's really important that he's a director and she's an actor because I think that notion of us we're all directing and being directed and we're all kind of acting our way through various different relationships and it's we don't know we're doing it half the time and I think she doesn't know she didn't know she couldn't see how that sort of slow drip drip of how her own personality was being eroded through his more domineering personality and it's only in the telling of the tale which is why I think it's like therapy in the telling of the tale she can sort of rewrite the narrative and they bring that in a few times this notion of we got to tell your story and you've got to control the narrative which also speaks to gender politics as well I think so I thought there was it was working on a lot of levels yeah totally what about the cast I mean it's a, it's a stacked cast isn't it it's I mean, one of my favorites is Julie Hegarty who I've only seen in, in Airplane she, she was great in this I love the cast. What I did also want to say in terms of the legal process was I have recently met a law firm who will only see couples together. That's the thing that they do. And I think other law firms offer this as an option now, but they actually will only do that to, in order to avoid this combative nature of divorce. Obviously, now we have no-fault divorce, which has changed the whole landscape and you don't have to sort of come up with reasons like unreasonable behaviour and so on. I mean, some people want to come up with a reason why, <laughs> why they're getting a divorce and actually have that documented. But yeah, I do think it's interesting how, Kobe, you say that divorce is so expensive, but perhaps it doesn't necessarily need to be in the future. Perhaps there will be a more conscious and amicable way, even though, of course, it is this hugely painful process. And sort of talking about the cast, it's interesting how my reading of this film on a second watch has altered. And the first time I watched it was when it came out in December 2019. And 
I actually found both of the leads relatively sympathetic and I thought they were both really trying to have an amicable separation and it really was when the lawyers got involved that things started going wrong. I mean, particularly Laura Dern's character sort of changes the landscape of how this divorce is going to play out. And so I, in my head, had always cast both Laura Dern and Ray Liotta's divorce lawyer, who is still terrible, but I had cast both of them <laughs> as the baddies of this movie. Yeah. And I found Alan Alder's character, who, as you rightly say, is still charging a fair old whack. I'd found him a sort of a much more ethical lawyer, if you can have such a thing, who at least wanted to bring some humanity to the process, but perhaps wasn't going to get the best for their client in the sort of war-like situation that we've seen in sort of Kramer versus Kramer, War of the Roses and so on. But what was interesting, I have sort of obviously not seen the film for a while and watched it a second time, just, well, uh, parts of it last night and the rest of it earlier this morning. And having spoken to friends, including a psychotherapist friend of mine who absolutely hates Adam Driver's character and really sees parallels perhaps not surprisingly, between him and the male character in Noah Baumbach's other film about divorce, The Squid and the Whale, where we have these sort of tortured male geniuses who sort of use that artistic CV almost as an excuse to sort of cover up for not necessarily great behaviour and not listening <laughs> really to anyone beyond their own needs. And so I suppose if you were looking again through that sort of feminist lens, actually, I i mean, I love Laura Dern, even whether I don't do or don't like the character she's playing. She's <laughs> awesome. But I think viewing the film through a sort of more feminist lens, perhaps I actually liked Laura Dern's character more as well because she does make some really good points, as I think Sasha hinted, about the, what she's having to battle really in terms of the social codes and expectations for men and women and particularly for mothers and fathers in this case and what is expected of mothers and the higher standards that are indeed expected. So, yeah, I, it was interesting how my view of the different characters and the cast sort of changed on a second rewatch. And I, yeah, I do think Laura Dern's character is quite pivotal to how the film sort of switches from them trying to be amicable and then <laughs> things really ramping up in, in quite horrible ways. I think with Laura Dern's character, she, Nora, she always had great points. And I think that was fantastic. And you raised a couple of points where she, where she did say, look, the father can be X, he can be X, he can be Y, he can be Z, but the mother cannot be, the mother has to be almost like beyond reproach, which is unfair, but she's obviously working on behalf of her client. I don't, I'd, I'd like to know what she's like when representing a non-female character in the similar kind of, you know, the other side of, the, of it, because I'm sure she'd also have another story to tell for the, from the father's point of view. Mm. I, I just think she's obviously a, a fantastic lawyer and she knows what to do to to win the case. And Bert was very quickly, Alan Alder's character was very quickly like out of his debt and needing that sidebar saying, you know, she's a very good lawyer. <laughs> and quickly Adam Driver, Charlie, Adam Driver's Charlie's parts ways because he knows he's on the losing side, which is, I don't know, again, do I want that to be a losing side? No. 
Well, they all lose, don't they? They both, everybody loses. That's what's so sad is that it's not, and that's why I think it's a good film is it's not one of them is all bad and one of them is all good. And I think they each have flaws and they each realise as they go along quite what they did and didn't bring to and get from the marriage. But I think even with Nora, you said, oh, she'd probably tell a different story if she has a male client. And I think it's really important that it's called Marriage Story because it is all about people's stories, including Nora's herself. I sort of got the feeling that she is better when she presents women because I think, yes, she's a good lawyer and she knows how to spin the tail to make her client look good. But I also got the sense that why she's so good is that this was coming from her, that she was with each client exorcising something of her own, like revenge fantasy almost. I really got the sense that this was coming from a place of deep hurt that she knew on a personal level. And some of those speeches about women are always going to be held to a higher standard and it's fucked up, but that's just the way it is. I think that was her talking from her own experience. I don't think it was just the lawyer in her. I really got a sense that I'm doing this because I nobody did it for me. So I think she probably, I suppose as a lawyer, she probably did get male clients, but I don't know if it would be quite so personal. Well, she maybe doesn't. Maybe she just takes on women. Yeah. We don't know that. In my fantasy on this rewatch, I was thinking, oh, she just represents women. That's sort of what made me really like her <laughs> on this second rewatch. But I do <laughs> want to say my favourite line is when Alan Alder says, it's like a death, but with nobody. <laughs> yeah. So true. I think thinking about the lawyers and lawyers in the cast, obviously Ray Liotta, it was great to see him in this. There's a marked difference, wasn't there, between Nora's first meeting and Jay, Ray Liotta's first meeting where their prospective clients, where Laura's like, here's a cup of tea, sits on a sofa, <laughs> cozying up and just have, you're just listening to the story. Whereas Ray Liotta's character was straight, I almost could imagine pulling out some guns and shooting the ceiling or something like that because he was already on the offensive saying, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this and laying things out almost like a military military action. So it was almost there from the from the get-go. But and before we go to the scores, guys, are there any scenes you want to pick out? Because I think it's it's a subtle film, but I think there was some there's some definitely interesting nuances and the acting between you know specifically Adam Driver and, and Scarlett was was fantastic. Helen, anything anything you want to pull out? I mean I could pull out the whole film. I think they're <laughs> they're both fantastic in this. And I feel that this is one of the films that's kind of been like over memed and that some of the scenes that are quite emotional, particularly the Adam Driver kind of crying and, and screaming has appeared so much in a different context that the, the original kind of emotion you get from watching that is almost lost. But I think also Scarlett Johansson, when she is kind of, she's just really magical in this. And like when she's being a mum and she's cutting the hair, it's just like when the start, when they're giving out the descriptions about the things that they like about each other, you really kind of feel everything about them that they love about each other in just a very, very short space of time. And yeah, like, I love her when she dresses as David Bowie. I think that's really cute. And I find it really distressing when Adam Driver slices his arm open and he's too proud to admit that he's done it. And I think that kind of sums him up as a character. And the singing scene as well is it's like a single take and it's just quite, it's just a very emotional film. I think there's just lots of emotion and it could could have been played slightly cheesy, but I think they both bring 
a real emotion to the characters that they've got there. And also it's kind of weird because you're watching it and you're going, so which bits of fiction and which bits has he woven in that are real? What happened? What didn't happen? What's his side? And what's him trying to play her side? So it's it's so weird that it's like, it's fictional, but we all know that it's slightly probably not in some places. <laughs> yeah, wasn't it based on like Noah Baumbach and Jenna Jason Lee, their relationship breaking down and that's, that's the kind of the nux yeah. of it. So there's lots of things, which makes sense. I mean, obviously a lot of drama is based on reality. Is there anything else guys want to say before we head to the scores? Obviously you can keep on talking about the film as we're scoring the pod. I had some a couple of favourite scenes. I mean, there were so many that I thought were brilliant, but in terms of the sort of very concise visual storytelling, there's one scene where her power goes off and he goes over to help and the electric gates won't work and they are together pulling the electric gates closed manually and he's on one side and she's on the other and their faces are like really close together and the gates is in between them and the, and it's sort of slowly closing and their view of each other is like slowly being obliterated and they're kind of completely separated and it felt such a beautiful moment of depicting the barrier that was coming up between them, really. And then also, like, Helen. I thought the two songs at the end, side by side, and their choice of song, and the fact that hers was with her mum and her sister, and it was all sort of jolly and funny and there was little dancing movements and you kind of felt like she's going to be all right. She's got support. She's looking forward. The future is female. She's going to, you know, sisters doing it for themselves sort of feel. And his song was him alone in a bar, just that sort of isolation of saying, I don't feel alive on, on my own. And that sort of that male combative refusal to see her as her, which led to the breakdown of the marriage, ended up being the thing that made him realise I'm no good on my own. I can't do it on my own. I need her, whereas she's going to be all right. And you really get the sense of he's not going to be all right. So I just thought their choice of song, the choice of venue, it really sort of summed up actually for all his arrogance, he's the lonely, isolated one because he hasn't got the friends. He doesn't know how to make those connections and she does. Well, that's pretty true to true to life, isn't it? That men do often struggle a whole lot more. Women do seem generally better at creating those social structures and social networks and maintaining them through relationships, whereas men often find themselves alone and very lonely. So that, that seems pretty true. I also really do like the device that Helen mentioned of when they at the start of the film, compile a list as requested by their mediator, compile a list of things they love about one another, because that really introduces us to the characters in, in a really lovely way. And when that list then comes back right at the end, I find that even more than the horrible argument we see, that is the emotional gut punch for me when he's reading what she said. Yeah. Well, with that, guys, let's head to the scores. I'm Sam Clements, host of the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, another podcast in the Stripped Media family. 
a podcast that celebrates movies under 90 minutes long. Each episode, I'm joined by a special guest who selects a movie to join our prestigious lineup. Past guests have included fellow stripped media family members Martin and Sam from Song by Song, and Kobe from Flixwatcher, and Dave from The Wire Stripped. Search for us now on the app you're currently listening to this podcast, or join us at 90minfilmfest.com. Welcome to the Flixwatcher scores. All of the scores are out of five. You can have decimal places if you wish. And we will start with you, please, Rosie, with your recommendability. Oh, well, it's a tricky one because it's slightly subjective, isn't it? So I would almost say it's a five to anyone who's not just going through a divorce, in which case it's a, it's really like a zero and really not don't watch this right now. It's probably going to be too much. <laughs> so I think on average, I'll, I'll go a four because I do think there is a caveat as to whether you would recommend it to absolutely everybody, because I think it would just be too sad and harrowing if you are in that process of grieving and, and going through a separation. Sasha? Yeah, I kind of second that, really. I think, in fact, I was talking about it with a friend who is divorced and she said that, yeah, she couldn't she couldn't watch. It was all too close to home. So, yeah, I, I, don't watch it if you're going through a breakup. But otherwise, yeah, I'd probably I'd probably go. I'm going to say four point two. There we go. <laughs> Helen. I don't know. I mean, you're saying like, don't watch it, but like maybe do watch it if you maybe need to feel that other people are going through it and that, you know, there is kind of light at the end and they do sort of have a relationship that is functional towards the end. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely like one of the best Noah Baumbach films because I've I've seen pretty much all of them and he's definitely got better at writing characters generally. And some of his male characters are kind of everything that Charlie is, but there's not much redeeming qualities about them. Whereas I think you can sort of get along with Charlie a bit more than some of his other ones. So I do really, really love this film. But yeah, I guess maybe a small caveat is you probably need to read that it is about a divorce and whether you want to go there, but I'm still going to give it 4.8. Boom. I I can't remember what you gave the squid and the whale when we talked about that. I'm going to go for 4.5 and I think it's improved on my, on the second viewing. And, you know, picking up on, on like the scene that Sasha's talking about with the, with the gates closing and seeing that as a, an allegory for exactly what they were going through. They're so close together, but at the same time, separated very, very distinctively and discreetly from each other. And I think that was a magical piece of filmmaking. Repeat viewing score, Rosie. Yeah, I would, I would rate that pretty highly because I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it on a second watch and I, I'm not an avid re-watcher of films. I only tend to watch things like Inception that I didn't understand first time around. <laughs> and so, yeah, but I was surprised. I really enjoyed this again because I hadn't remembered all the subtlety of, of the, the way the relationship deteriorates and then ultimately sort of is, as Helen says, functional by the end again. Yeah, I would go 4.2. Sasha? 
Yeah, it's a hard one because it was a painful watch. It was a sad watch. And I don't, I also don't really tend to rewatch things. And I'm not sure I'd want to put myself through it again, really. But I thought it was a very skillful piece of filmmaking. I thought it was brilliantly acted, scripted, directed. So I think if I could go in with a slightly harder carapace <laughs> to protect myself <laughs> from the sadness, going in knowing what I was going into, I think that to watch it more kind of critically, I suppose, rather than emotionally, then yeah, I think it definitely bears rewatching. So I'm going to go 3.8. Nice, Helen. So I watched this pretty much maybe the night that it came on, on Netflix back in 2019. And thank you for picking it because I've been waiting for someone t- to pick it, to rewatch it. And I definitely enjoyed it a lot more the second time round. I kind of liked it when it came out and I was a bit like, oh, I really wish I loved it, loved it. But this time round, I got so much more out of it and really, really, really loved it. So I'm probably going to go back to it a bit sooner than, what what is it, like the three plus years that I've been waiting to watch it again. So I'm going to give it a four. Yeah, I, I'm going to give it a decent score for rewatch because like Helen, I, I enjoyed it more and got more out of it the second time as I said before I don't think I will watch it often again though I've kind of taken a lot from it but yeah five years down the line certainly have a have a rewatch of it so that gives us for me 3.5 small screen score Rosie oh well wasn't this a Netflix release anyway so hasn't it always been effectively a small screen film yeah, we're not talking about necessarily how it has to have been seen. Would you prefer to see it on a big screen, for example? If not, then that's a that should be quite a high score. No, I do. I th- I think it worked pretty well, and I sort of think it's because it's so tr- potentially triggering. Even if you're not going through a breakup at the moment, <laughs> I think it's an emotional watch, and you might get a little tearful. I had moments where I did, and I think for that reason, it it is really best watched at home in private. So, yeah, I would give it a four on that as well. And Sasha? Yeah, I think it's quite a domestic drama. It takes place in rooms. (laughs) (laughs) It's about people talking. It's about a relationship. So I don't think it necessarily needs to be on the big screen. I think it's it's fine for a small screen. Yeah, four. So yeah, if I'd have had the chance, then I would have absolutely have loved to gone and seen this at the cinema, even if it was just to see Adam Driver eating a pizza in that way, really, really big. That would be really good. But yeah, I think this is like the first Netflix release to get a 30-day theatrical release, but I don't know what it was like over here for us. So yeah, I, th- I think definitely that domestic vibe in that it's very, very personal doesn't require the big screen. So yeah, I'm going to give it a five, even though I would have liked to have seen it on the big screen just because... I like seeing his films at the cinema. <laughs> yeah, I would have totally seen this in the cinema had I had the opportunity. I'm a sucker for an indie film, even on, on the big screen. That said, I don't think it needs to be. Sasha just saying it is all in rooms. I imagine this is quite an easy film, quite a cheap film to shoot. They probably just shot it all in LA. And even the scenes in New York in the rooms were probably just uh, sound stages or rooms that look like they could be in New York. So I don't think you, there wasn't much the vista about it. So 4.8. Engagement score, Rosie. Oh, now explain to me engagement quickly. So engagement score is like obviously set up for the fact that you're going to be watching this at home, potentially on your sofa or in your bed. How engaged are you? How frequently are you checking your phone? How much are you thinking, oh, I need to go get a cup of tea? If you're 
fully locked into the film. That's a super high engagement score. And Oh, yes. Got you. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, I think it's because you're on such an emotional journey with the characters. It's it's a really pretty engaging film. So, yeah, I would, yeah, let's say, oh God, I keep saying around about the four mark because it seems about right for everything. Let's say 3.8. <laughs> Sasha? I mean, it, it, it's not a page turner. It, it's not completely gripping. I did need uh, the odd sort of sobbing break <laughs> where I just wanted to get away <laughs> from the intensity of it. So I think maybe 3.5 for me. Helen? Yeah, it's definitely not one of those kind of, if you blink and you'll miss a major plot point and you'll have to like rewind to find out why that character went into that room type film. <laughs> but yeah, I kind of went into it as a bit like looking at, stuff on my phone and then actually was like you know what actually I'm just going to really enjoy being in it so I'm going to give it a four for engagement I'm going to go a bit higher than you guys 4.2 again more engaged at the second watching on the second viewing and also I was picking up on the I was trying to pick up the little incidental pieces which then became a big mountain in the in the conversations with the lawyers you know the, the bits like where Adam Driver didn't realize he had to lock the car seat in and then that becomes something that was like a cute moment where they help each other out and then suddenly becomes a big thing at the, at the table. So I was trying to pick, I was trying to like play the game, what's going to come out in the conversation with the lawyers. So that hooked me in a bit more. But that gives us an overall score of 4.14375, which is great. That's high, yep. Yep, anything over four is top tier. It's fan Dabidozzi. Repeat viewing score slightly lower than the rest at 3.875, so taking it down a touch. Uh, also, engagement score 3.875. So, yeah, I think the small screen score and the recommendability was super high in those cases. Should we head to Twitter, guys? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, everyone who's listening to us now, thank you very much. If you don't follow us already on Twitter, we are at FlixWatcherPod. We're also on threads at FlixWatcher. Do follow us because we talk about stuff on Netflix in general, but also we do ask for shout outs in tweets just before we go to recording saying something similar to this. We're reviewing Marriage Story with Rosie Wilby and Sasha Bates from Breakup Monologues and Shrink the Box. Have you seen it? Tell us your thoughts and a score out of five stars for an on-air shout-out on FlexWatcher. We had a couple of responses. Rosie, this is your film. Do you want to say the first one? Liam H. Dempsey has said, Utterly gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. The performances from Driver and Johansson are just remarkably raw and emotionally visceral. This film chewed me up and spat me out and I haven't recovered. Five stars. Nice. Helen, do you want to take this one? So this one is from John Loftus, past guest of the show. Couldn't get through 30 minutes of it, so couldn't award any stars. So... <laughs> Honest? I mean, that's his review. Yep. I think, John, maybe you should uh, go back, maybe, seeing as it's so highly recommended by us. But I think it just <laughs> goes to show that it's not something that everyone will get on with. Yeah. Absolutely. It is also quite a lot of people talking, isn't it? It is just a talky film where people talk a lot. But as someone who punches a wall. Yeah, that comes later on. <laughs> Sasha and Rosie, please sign off by telling everyone who's listening where we can find you online. Tell us about your podcasts, your book, anything else, and we'll say goodbye to everyone. Okay, Sasha Bates. I am at Sash Bates on the socials. My podcast is called Shrink the Box. It's on wherever you get your podcasts and my books are available wherever you get your books. <laughs> yeah, that's me. What are the name of your books so people can find them? Oh, okay. They're called Languages of Loss, A Grief Companion, and Yoga Saved My Life. <laughs> uh, Rosie. 
That sounds very jolly. Yes. I can be found on Twitter while it still exists at Rosie Wilby. I can also be found on Instagram and threads at Breakup Monologues or on TikTok at Rosie Wilby Author. So yeah, lots of different handles there. I've, I've really done that badly, haven't I? But get over it. You can find me. If you, if you search for Breakup Monologues <laughs> and Rosie Wilby, you will find me. And you can listen to the Breakup Monologues podcast on all of the good podcast places. Yeah, all the usual ones where you're also listening to Flix Watcher in the first place. And the Breakup Monologues book is available yeah, everywhere where you get your books. Now, I don't know when this one is going to be coming out, but we're always recording live episodes of the Breakup Monologues around and about a lot in London, but also at festivals and venues around the UK. So do drop me a line and yeah, you know, hopefully maybe see you at a live show somewhere if we're coming to a town near you. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much, guys. It's been a pleasure to talk about Marriage Story. I'll see you soon. Thanks so much for coming on. Bye. 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 Enjoyed this episode of Flix Watcher Podcast? Why not leave us a five-star review on iTunes? You can also follow us at Flix Watcher Pod on Twitter and we're at Flix Watcher on Instagram. Thanks as always to the mighty people for their mighty, mighty tunes and Rockwood Audio's editing skills. If you're looking to get your podcast edited as sweet as this, get in touch with Rockwood, R-O-K-K Wood Audio. Tell them Flix Watcher sent you. just heard a stripped media production.